it's wonderful to welcome back Stan Butch to Church and Culture. He's been on before and got great reviews, and I enjoy the conversation as much as any that I've had on Church and Culture. So just to remind you, Stan is an author, lecturer, teacher, and former pastor. He currently lives in Baton Rouge and is writing his doctoral dissertation on the evangelical literary imagination. But today, we're going to be talking about a Catholic novelist, one of the greatest, George Bernanos. Stan and I have read together a number of Bernanos novels, studied his life and work overall. We'd like to talk this hour about George Bernanos. And Stan, I want to ask you, as a as an evangelical, why is it that Bernanos has such an impact on you? Bill, uh, thanks again for having me on the show. It's always a privilege and an honor to spend time with you and to talk about uh, good things. Uh, I came to Bernanos as a matter of uh, professional necessity um, before you and I met or before. Uh, I had had a great deal of exposure to some of the great Catholic novelists, and I was a uh, evangelical pastor at the time um, who was had heard great things about Diary of a Country Priest. And, and when I read Diary of a Country Priest, then it resonated with me as someone who had been assigned, for lack of a better term, the care of, of folk souls and, and spiritual direction and teaching. Um, the weight of, of that burden weighed on me uh, extremely heavily, and I came uh, almost pleadingly to Diary of the Country Priest and, and was not disappointed with the the depth and the sympathy with which Bernanos approached the life of someone who is entrusted with the care and keeping of, of souls of people. Well, let's talk about Diary of a Country Priest, which is by far his best-known work, and was made into a classic film by Robert Bresson uh, in the early 50s. Uh, Diary of a Country Priest is about a young, newly appointed Catholic priest who uh, struggled with stomach pains, and his own parish, which is in rural France, Embricourt, in northern France, and he's dealing with a lot of uh, disbelief, a lot of callousness, a lot of simple sloth that is not caring about what is good and what is bad. Is this something that any pastor can relate to, Stan? <laughs> well, the, the first years that I was that I was in ministry, I was I was a youth minister, and I was kind of a happy-go-lucky. Um, Kid of in his young twenties, and you know I had all the answers to all the questions, and, and had very few doubts, and lots of lots of judgments, and very few doubts about those judgments. Um, and after after a couple of years in ministry, I I, uh, I would have told you that I was you know completely healthy and well, and didn't have any stress, and you know had everything lined up. Um, at the same time, um, I was drinking about half a, a bottle of Pepto-Bismol every day. Um, <laughs> and, and, and then, and then uh, I should have noticed, uh, you know, I should have noticed that something was, was wrong then. I should have noticed that that, that is, uh, was not healthy. Uh, <laughs> still, I've got to tell you this, I went to, um, I, when I got my first pastoring job, I, I moved from pastoring to, to preaching for a church, and I went to the little local um doctor there, the clinic there, and I had noticed a, a pain at a certain spot on my back, and because it was so localized, I began to worry about the worst, and thinking, well, it was something, you know, there's something there, and it's, and it's something bad, and and eventually, it whatever it was broke through the skin, and, and I diagnosed myself with shingles, um, and I started researching shingles and found out that it was caused by stress that you had internalized, and, and all that sort of thing. So I go to this um, little clinic in this little bitty town, probably 800 folks in town, and uh, I go to the clinic and I said, doctor, I think I have shingles. She says, let me see them, and I show them to her, and I'm, I'm in my 20s. I mean, you don't get shingles in your 20s. It's not, you know, that's not normal. And and she says, are you in a lot of stress? And I, I said, well, I would have told you no. Uh, I didn't think I was, but evidently I was. And I said, well, you know, I'm drinking half a bottle of Pepto-Bismol a day, and now I've got shingles. 
and I had a great immune system and very healthy, uh, but I was internalizing a tremendous amount of stress. <laughs> there's a funny, there's a funny addendum to the story, and that is, of course, you treat shingles with the same um, medicine, or you did at the time, with which you treat herpes. And so here I am, a, a new pastor in this little uh-huh. town, and at, at some point, everybody in town goes to the pharmacist once a day. Uh, like they go to the like they go to the post office, but here I am. I walk from the clinic to the pharmacy, and I go up and I put my um, prescription for Valtrex up on the, the pharmacist counter, and uh, they say, "How are you doing today, Stan?" And I said, <laughs> "Well, I'm doing pretty good, except I've got shingles." You know, and I say it. And they're looking at the Valtrex. <laughs> That's right. So I've got a prescription for Valtrex, and, and, and I make sure that everybody in the uh, pharmacist. Uh, knows and the pharmacy knows that uh, that I have shingles. So when it gets around that I've got a prescription for Valtrex, everybody knows I've got shingles. But yes, yes, it is a tremendously stressful um, when when it's taken seriously. And I know it is. I you know I wouldn't be judgmental enough to to say that if you don't take it seriously. But but if if, if you do feel the the expectation, not only the bureaucratic expectation, which we understand and which Bernard News describes very very well, but in addition to the bureaucratic expectations. The, the the weight of of caring for the souls of another, even even the frustration of their not caring for their own soul, and and that's one of the things that he addresses as well. That there's there's this burden not just because of his responsibility, but because of his frustration that they don't seem to care at all about about their souls or the or the cancerous malice that they're carrying around in them while they come to, while they come to mass, while they come to confession and say the same trite things, the same the same glib confessions that they make every week and they say, you know, we're covering our bases and they're walking around with, with real malice in their heart and, and practically blaspheming in everything that they say. And and for a sensitive young priest uh, like uh, our priest in diary, this was just not only physically destructive to him, uh, but but spiritually destructive to him as well. Well, we can call him just simply the curé de Ambercore. We find out his boss, the curé de Torcy, the man he reports to, is a typical sort of veteran priest who treats, who, who appreciates the sensitivities of the young priest, but who kind of wants him to back off. Is that a fair way to put it? Well, he he is a kindred... He's a, these two are kindred spirits in a way. One of them, um, the, our curé, who the diary, who's writing the diary, is has a, has a high degree of spiritual sensitivity. He's referred to as a poet from time to time. The curé de Torsi is, is a much more practically minded man. And they do have they do have a great deal uh, in common, and they have a, a really great relationship. The the curator Torsi looks on him with a great deal of sympathy. He wants him to be more practical. Um, we we understand that that our, our, our curator who's writing the, the diary has has these these chronic stomach issues. And, I don't give the whole thing away. You can give away what you want to, but kind of like I'm not going to give the whole Pepto thing. <laughs> yeah, kind of like that. So, so as soon as I open the book, I relate to this immediately. Uh, <laughs> but you know, he's he's living on a diet of, of of bread and dipped in wine and a little sugar. He he can barely eat anything. He can't hold anything down. And you know, typically of the. the curator Torsi, who's a very practically minded man, he he just tells him, you know, if you would just eat steak. You you would be a whole lot better off, and of course the young priest says, "I can't eat; he can't keep anything on his stomach," and and so that's the difference in these two. Now there are, as an element of most of of uh, novels, a character who is tough-minded and practical, but he's faithful and good, and and is a good representative of the priesthood and a spiritual leader. But then you have then you have the bureaucratic uh, right. arm of, of the church, which Bernanus is generally very critical of. So no, he have, was he was a devout Orthodox and pious Catholic, but right. he didn't leave the church alone in his criticism. Right, and and 
his criticisms, and I'm sure we'll get into those as, as we go along. Um, but when when he imagines the the practically minded, very experienced priest, when he imagines the very spiritually sensitive, visionary young priest, he, he shows us what the priesthood can be. He right. shows us that 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 there is this heightened spirituality that 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 sees evil. And, and we'll get to that in Under the Son of Satan as we, when we talk about that. But sees evil for what it is. And then, then we have this very practically minded priest who, who uh, here's an example of a conversation. The, the young priest in diary says, I can't pray. He says, I, I, I am at an impasse in my prayer. I simply can't pray. And the old priest says, that's okay. Say your prayers anyway. And right. the... So, so, so there is this element of the spiritual sensitivity that the the main characters in Burnham's novels bring to uh, this this discussion, and then there is the good advice that says, even if you don't feel it, do it anyway, and that's always that's always good advice from the spirit. That's C.S. Lewis's advice. That's exactly if you, right. The, if you don't feel dry. love, act lovingly. That's right. That's right. The dry seasons. Uh, and, uh, well, let me ask you this. He goes over to visit the wealthy count and countess who kind of run the community, mm-hmm. They've got the money. And what he meets in the count is kind of a typical, you know, he treats the priest with respect, but it's clear that he doesn't want to spend any time being ministered to. Uh, but appreciates the fact that the priest is doing his duty by dropping by. But he meets something more, I like put it, uh, dark in his wife, the Countess. Tell us about that. Well, the darkness in that household is is extremely complex, and, and it's one of the great mysteries of the novel. The Countess has a son and a daughter, and the daughter was the firstborn of her children. The son was born and then died as an infant. Even before the son had born was born, the daughter and her husband, the Count, uh, had an extremely close relationship. And the, the Comte's real problem is that he is uh, he's he's weak character. He's weak. He's weak willed. And every woman in his life um, manipulates him and dominates him. And the one who is the most manipulative and the most dominating is his daughter. Uh, so much so that the Comtesse is jealous of um, her daughter and her husband's relationship. Now, there's nothing nefarious about this, and that's one right. of the, that's one of the real ingenious aspects of this novel to me that the, the young priest is able to see evil for what it is where nobody else sees evil or suspects evil. And, right. and the evil here is that the Countess has this hatred in her heart. She's mad at God because her infant son has died. She's mad at her husband because he doesn't seem to care about her loss and her grief. And because her husband spends more time and is in, invested so heavily in his relationship with his daughter that the contest is written off uh, out of that family picture, out of that relationship. She lives in this horrible isolation. She lives uh, as one who has carried this grief around, symbolized by a lock of hair, which she keeps in, in a locket. And, of course, none of this is visible to an outsider. They think everything is fine. But this this young young daughter is is manipulative. She is she is dominating. She is she is nasty. And she pulls this on the priest too, right? Oh, she pulls it on it. She pulls it on everybody. <laughs> uh, and 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 one of the interesting things is she she says how much like her mother uh, she is. <laughs> and and add add to this the fact that the comte, even though he uh, loves his daughter. He is a serial philanderer, and he is carrying on with the daughter's governance. So 
the daughter uh, has this campaign to get the, the governess uh, ejected and kicked out of the household and, and run off with no, um, you know, with, with no support or, or you know, no unemployment or anything like that. And, and it's interesting, as the novel starts, the young priest feels a particular attraction to the governess and believes that the governess is just, she's an innocent and she's above the board and she's, she's doing what she's supposed to do. And the more he gets to know these people, the governess is carrying on with the comte. The comte has an unnatural relationship with his daughter, and the poor countess is isolated from all this, turning a blind eye to her husband's philandering, but knowing very well that he has a relationship with the daughter that is unnatural. Uh, it's not, you know, not sinful or lascivious or anything like that. It's just, it's just unnatural. And, and, it's, and it's not good. And so here she is. She's full of hate. But she's at Mass every time. She's at Confession every week. And she's why, why does she finally blow up at the priest and throw the medallion of her son's hair into the fire? <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a bit of... She's being a, a bit hysterical when, when that occurs. Although you can see it coming. Uh, the only one who doesn't seem to see that coming is is the is the young priest. He he has challenged her to resign herself to the loss of her son, the grief and the loss of her son, which she has not resigned herself to. She's carried around that loss. She's carried around that lock of hair. She's furious at her husband. She's furious at her daughter. But most importantly, she's furious at God, and yeah. she confesses to it. She says, "I'm you know furious at God." Hate God, um, and, and it's not even it's not even unbelief, which which I think is is one of the really really brilliant moves that Brennanus makes in this book, and that is to champion an anger at God over a boredom with God that Brennanus saw as a as a, uh, as a characteristic of French Catholicism at the time. Yeah, now, I want to back up just a second. Uh, there is a overarching theme in Diary of a Country Pri Pri uh, Priest, in spite of all the spiritual struggle and, and anger, and jealousy, uh, eroticism, all of this, and that is the theme of grace. And how is that articulated, particularly at the end of the book, and do you find it convincing? At the end of the book, the, the young priest is, is dying, and he has died, and he is, um, his friend has passed on an account of his death to uh, the older priest, the curé de Torcy. The friend in whom in whose house he dies is a uh, defrocked priest who has left the priesthood and is living outside of marriage um, with a woman. Here's a man who who knew the priesthood through and through, and who is the only person around to give, for lack of a better term, our hero his last rites, and. Um, I don't know exactly, you know, what those, what the conditions are at his death. There's, there's not a great deal of, of detail given there. But he does what he can. He does what he feels like he can do. And so there's this moment where, is this, is our hero, this, this country priest, is he attended properly on his deathbed? And his friend bends down. And he says, I am quite sure that I have recorded his last words accurately, for his voice, though halting, was strangely distinct. Doesn't matter. Grace is everywhere. I think he died just then. Some, some, are, some people translate that all as grace. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. Um, so are you convinced by that? Oh, I am convinced. Absolutely. <laughs> all that he's been through 
all the evil that he was subjected to that he sacrificed his life for. All is grace. Why? How, how do you make sense of that, Dan? Well, in the in the scene that we mentioned earlier, where the where the contest takes the the lock of hair in the locket and throws it into the fire, the priest says, "What is this madness?" And he dives down and thrusts his hand into the fire to try to salvage the locket and the lock of hair. And the Comtesse realizes his his genuine concern for her. Yeah. And and he he is always so self deprecating. He says, Look, you're you're not confessing to me, you're confessing to God. I, I'm only I'm only here as a representative. I I'm nothing. I am and he's he's absolutely uh, self deprecating and honestly humble, sincerely humble. But she tells him that she's going to uh, come to confession the next day, and she's at peace, and she'll never feel this hatred again. She'll never you know, that, that his his command to her to resign herself to that loss and that grief that she has experienced that she that she obeys those she's obedient to to that uh, command. She dies that night. Um, there was no, there was no indication that she was ill. Evidently, she has a heart attack. Of course, he's blamed for it. Of course, he has, he, that, you know, there are witnesses in the house and they understand that there's this loud, violent scene going on in the room. The priest leaves and the next day she's dead. And so, of course, everybody blames him for this, for stirring her up. Or but she died in grace. She died in grace. But she died in grace and he sees that. And, and that's one of the, generally, Bernice will have a couple of scenes that are spiritual showdowns. And those, they are breathtaking. Well, um, speaking of that, yeah, that's a great segue that. to the yeah. novel from 10 years earlier, Under the Star of Satan, right. where we have a priest, Donasong, who encounters a young woman, Mouchette, who is... Uh, set on self-destruction. Now, set this set this plot up for us so we can go further into it. The the priest in Under the Son of Satan is very very similar to our priest in Diary of a Country Priest. He's one of these uh, poetic, visionary, very very humble, feels himself almost worthless. He's very bad at what he does. <laughs> you know, it's it's as these priests are being described. We know we know priests who have it all together, and you know they dot their eyes and cross their t's, and they're always on every meeting, and they look great, and, and you know. Every, this guy point. wants to be a saint. I don't have to, I don't remember that he wants to be one. Oh does yeah, he? he does. Okay, yeah. well he he, ends up he being, sets that out his intention. One. Okay, well he ends up being one. Or he ends up being regarded as as close to one um, because of his because of his secret uh, mortification of the flesh uh, because he um, you know he, he like our diary of the country priest he he is uh, he's he's really bad at it he, he can't keep anything clean he's always messy he's a big uh, lunk of a fellow and he's an embarrassment to his community but he is the real deal. And and like our diary of a country priest, that, that that's the same kind of character. He's an embarrassment to his people. He is so peculiar. He is so odd. He is so different. And I I, I appreciate that. I, I and for this reason, one of, one of the things that Bernanus is highly critical of is the general acclamation of Christianity modern culture and basically he says the two are indistinguishable and he hates that he, he says that the church should be different that the church, and, and that's a very scriptural concept of course you know um, Peter writes about uh, that God has made us a peculiar people zealous of good works and and when you think about Christians today you generally think of you rarely think of them as peculiar or Zealous. Well, this guy definitely is. 
that this guy definitely is in both of these characters, and they don't fit in. And, and what one of the great tragedies in Scripture is in the Old Testament when God calls Israel to Himself, and He says, "Look, I want you to be a special." And that's the word that's translated "peculiar" uh, in in the New Testament. I want you to be a special people to me above all peoples of the world, a holy nation, a nation of priests. And, and then Israel comes to God and says, "Well, we 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 don't want to be different." We don't want to be peculiar. We want to be we want to be like all our neighbors around us. Make us a king like all the nations around us. And so they they don't want to stand out. They don't want to be different. And and that's one of the things that Bernanus does with these characters that he makes us love and feel sorry for. We're running out of time in the first half, so Oh no. Okay. Well we've got to spend some time on this one. We've got to we've got to talk about the horse trader, obviously. Well the Uh, horse trader scene is one of the great scenes in all of Bernanus' work. Absolutely. It's breathtaking. It's horrifying. So start telling us about it. We'll take a break in a second. Okay, he's, he's, on, he's on the road one night. He gets lost. He's, he's walking around these trails and he thinks he's familiar with me. Finds out that he's in a circle. It's a misty, rainy night. and he, He's just lost. He, he didn't have very far to go, but he's walking and walking and walking and walking. And all of a sudden, this guy comes alongside of him and says he can help him get where he's going if he'll just let him walk with him. And so he starts walking with him. He's a horse trader. Um, and it turns out that this is an actual incarnation of Satan. And so they, they have not only this discussion, but, but results in a, in a very, very uh, dramatic scene of spiritual warfare with, with the devil himself, in, in which um, Denison is able to um, actually win this confrontation. And, and I'm not sure that Brother Nurse uh, doesn't uh, picture for us the idea that it might be easier to confront Satan himself when we realize who he is, <laughs> Good then, point. then it is sometimes for us to deal with. Okay, we're going to break right yeah. there. That's a great point. I'm talking with Stan Butts about the novels and great work of the French Catholic writer George Bernanos. We'll be right back. I am back with Stan Butts. We're talking about the great French Catholic writer George Bernanos, and we were talking about his early novel from 1926, Under the Son of Satan. And we're then talking about how Father Donison, who wants to be a saint, he's very earnest, in fact, overly earnest about it, according to his mentor, Father Manu de Gras, counters Satan on the road in the form of a horse trader. But Stan, once he has his encounter, which, as you described, is a real highlight in all of Berenice's work, what happens when he meets Mouchette, who seems determined to kill herself? <laughs> well, the, the encounter with, with the horse trader, who turns out to be Satan, is, as you mentioned, one of the great, one of the great scenes in Berenice, and, and one of the more supernatural um, yeah. of, of the saints. It's... I'm not sure that Stephen King, when he wrote The Stand, didn't uh, model uh-huh. his his walking man on the, the horse trader character who was Satan. Of course, when um, our Father Denison begins to uh, command Satan, he, he throws himself on the ground and he makes all of these insect-like movements, and it's a it's a it's a very horrifying very horrifying scene. But it, but he wins that battle against Satan, who is who is there in front of him, and then Mouchette comes along. And I've been thinking about, about Mouchette lately. There's another novel, a, a smaller novel by that title uh, that, that he had written, and we'll, I think, talk some more about it. But Mouchette is a, is a French name that means little fly. And I thought about that in relation to one of the scriptural names uh, for Satan, which is Beelzebub, which is Lord of the Flies. And when you see that here, that, that he is prepared because he has this uh, actual showdown with Satan himself, but then horror of horrors, now now he's in front of, of Mouchette and, and he's commanding her uh, spiritually, at which point she takes a razor and cuts her own throat and, and uh, commits suicide there, there in front of him. Um, 
he has he has wonderful insight into uh, well, I shouldn't say wonderful. He has he has particular insight into sin, and, and he's he says all the right things. He says the right things, right? Um, and you know, this confrontation, of course, ends in, in ends in her death, very much like, or we should say, maybe uh, like the the showdown with the Countess in, in Diary of the Ex- Except that's a redemptive show. That's <laughs> right. redemptive, and this isn't. Right, it's exactly the opposite result. So the showdown is very, very similar. He, he strikes at exactly what the spiritual problem is, and then the result in this case is not that she dies redeemed, but that she dies unredeemed. I think it's and one it, of the strengths of Bernanos's work that he's but, willing to depict damnation. Absolutely. Without absolutely. pulling punches, without a happy ending. And the failure of, of, of a priest who, who does all things right, and all of a sudden, right. you know, they, things go tragically wrong. If you <laughs> want happy endings, don't read Berninos. Oh, that's the truth. Um, but but it's, it's almost similar to Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 2, um, Peter and the apostles stand up, and they're preaching on the day of Pentecost, and it, we read, and the audience was pricked in the heart and said, Men and brethren, what should we do? And they asked the apostles what they should do, and the apostles command them what to do. And, and 3,000 people, you know, do what they, they are pricked to the heart, cut to the heart. Well, in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is preaching to the Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees, um, you have that same phrase, and they were cut to the heart. Well, what do they do? Well, they rush on Stephen, gnashing on him with their teeth, throwing him out of town, and stoning to death. You know, the, the, the message is exactly the same. You crucified the Son of God. In one case, they're cut to the heart and they obey. In the other case, they're cut to the heart and they stone the messenger. So, so this this is a biblical concept. That, that yeah. sometimes you say the truth and the truth is received and, and it's redemptive. And then the other times you get stoned because you did it. And, and Bernanus is, is showing us that, that there are different responses to the truth. And the response is not necessarily the responsibility of the messenger. The responsibility of the messenger is to tell the truth and to confront yeah. evil where it is. So, a year after Diary of a Country Priest, he published a short novel using the, as his central character the name of Mouchette once again. Now, this is, if I was to recommend a novel to our leader, uh, readers, listeners, I should say, who want to read a book by Berninos, I think Mouchette, 1937, is where I would go. You could read it in an afternoon, really. Uh, Mouchette is 14, lives in a crummy little French town like the town that was lived in by the curé we talked about earlier. And she is on her way home from school, but she decides to go off in the woods and meets a a poacher named Arsene. You pick it up from there, Stan. Well, a little, little more backstory before we get there. Uh, she's 14. She's got a little brother who she cares for. She has a, a mother who is practically on her deathbed. She has an alcoholic father. There's, there's no real comfort at home. No comfort at home whatsoever. Uh, her, her father is alcoholic and abusive. Um, she is very, very poor. She's made fun of at school. She's made fun of for her shoes. She's made fun of for her, her clothes. But she's, she's tough. She's a tough kid. And she, she re- rebels against her mistreatment. So she's out in the, she's out in the woods. It's a, it's a bad, um, weather's bad. Once again, Bernice is great about tying the, events to the weather and, and, and to nature, yeah. how the world reacts to these awful scenes. Uh, so, so she ends up in this, in this cabin, this hut out in the forest with this poacher and it's, it's a rainstorm once again. And he confesses to accidentally shooting, um, somebody or I don't know if it's, if it's accidental or not. He basically says, I, sh- I shot somebody. And he wants to establish an alibi with her. He, he says, hey, if anybody asks, me and you were in this, me and you were out here in the hut, and you can vouch for, you can vouch for my location as an alibi. 
She says she'll do that, no problem. And she tries. And, she's, to leave. and meanwhile, she's getting the kind of personal attention she's lacked from her family and her friends. Exactly, exactly. She's being treated like a person. She's not being treated like a serf who uh, has to put food on the table, care for the little brother. She's she's basically dehumanized at home. She's dehumanized at school. And all of a sudden, here's this person who's it's, he, listen. He's not a track star or anything. He's a he's an epileptic uh, uh, outlaw. I mean, there's nothing good. You know, he's not. Not a great guy, and, and uh, but he is paying attention to her, and the weather has put them in this situation, and here they are, they're in this place together. Of course, he realizes that if that if they're out here together, and he's got this alibi, and she's going to, you know, say what he tells her to say, then he can probably just take advantage of her, and which he does, he rapes her there in the in the little hut, and. Uh, believes that she won't tell the truth uh, about that, believes that she'll be too humiliated by that. And so basically makes it so that she has to provide his alibi and um, rapes, her, rapes her in the process. So here's this 14-year-old girl who's, who's not wanted at home, who's made fun of by everybody, who's marginalized in every possible way, and the only person who has given her any personal attention has now... Um, you know, done this this awful, awful thing to her, and the tragedy is just overwhelming. And so she sort of limps back home in er, is sort of almost mourning, isn't isn't it? Mm, mm. Yes, yes. I, I would say, um, you know, I, I think that th- this is this is uh, simplified in its description as a coming of age story, um, and it is. It is that. There is no doubt about it. But it, it's it's coming to see a world that that was simply um, that was simply almost unlivable to seeing a world that actually has evil in it. And that's what Bernanese wants us to see when he's showing us the when he's showing us the horse trader, when he's showing us uh, his mouchette who cuts her own throat, when he when he when he shows us. The the he he wants us he wants us to see real sin, and and what's what's interesting about this is because he is so critical of of the venality of sin of a culture that that minimizes sin that yawns at sin or laughs it off as ridiculous or outdated or outmoded or or whatever it is. Bernanos wants us to see that sin is real and evil is real. And so he brings us to these, these harrowing circumstances to wake up his reading audience to the reality of evil. And to the reality of spiritual des- desolation, desperation. Yes. Um and you know you, the way you provided more backstory on Mouchette was really important because you really can't understand the action of this novel unless you realize in the first place how completely empty Mouchette is as a human being because she's without love, completely without love, completely without friendship, and is asked only to do for the drunken father and the dying mother what they can't do for themselves without any thank you or appreciation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And she, you know, she is treated and, and she's right there on, she's right there at a, at a strange age, obviously, you know, especially, especially at that period in history. Um, She's right on the borderline of between being a girl and being a woman. She, at home, is basically the woman of the house because her mother is in mother's bedridden and dying. So there's this real confusion of is she a girl or a woman in her own mind. Right. Not 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 just. You know, it's, it's not, and it is that. It, it is this lack of love. It is this lack of attention. It is that. But look, it's also a very confusing time for her. Is this what 
is this what womanhood is about? And Bernanese writes, I think, and, and it, I know it's always dangerous when a man says that, that another man writes writes a good a good woman, but but I think, no, I think I think that's been generally uh, agreed to by critics, male and female. Good, yeah, because I think I think the the particularly the dynamic in the Comte's household and Irish country priest really really explores some of uh, some central issues about womanhood, uh, particularly in the loss of a child and what, and, and and Michette too in, in this novel. There, what happens the, to Michette, Stan? Michette uh, eventually, um, at the end of the novel, dies a, a rather Ophelia like death, which is um, probably appropriate. We're left to uh, believe that she has drowned. Of course, whether it was suicide or not is the question. And, and that's another thing that he does, that it, with the exception of Michette in Under the Son of Satan, the issue of suicide is often explored in Bernanus novels, but it's also rarely admitted. The possibility of it is, is admitted, but not the actuality of it. So we don't know if she did or if she didn't. One of the, one of the great characters in, um, Diary of a Country Priest, Dr. Delbin, who we love, even though he's a secular and he, he's not a believer as far as we can tell, um, has a hunting accident. And, you know, the question is, did he commit suicide or did he yeah. not commit suicide? We don't know. Uh, and, and the complexity of that issue is explored as well as when we get to Michette, did Michette, um, kill herself or did she, did she drown? Well, we do know. What we do hope, you know, is that is that her existence, which was so tragic, I mean, her life is tragic in every in every regard. There is there's not a thing about that. There will be there will be grace. That's what we hope. Yeah, that's that's what we hope, and that's what that's the expression at the end of Diamond Country's was grace. Now we have ten minutes left, so we have to move to Berenice's last, and some people say greatest novel. Monsieur Ween, that's O-U-I-N-E, means nothing, Monsieur Nothing, which uh, is a book that it took me three readings just to get the most elemental handle on it. Uh, how would you sort of provide an introduction or set up to this particular novel, Stan? Well, I think the novel is, is meant to be ambiguous. I think it's it's like you said one of those things where you try to get a handle on it. It just seems to slip out of your hand every every time you, you do it. It is the story of a um, an old uh, debauched man who is is uh, he's also dying. But uh, you know I'm not sure, and you, and you may disagree with me on this. But but he stands I think as an embodiment of temptation. As an embodiment of oh, yeah. intellectual temptation, you know, because he's he's a teacher. Uh, he has he's a man of the world. He you know there's a there's a degree of intellectualism that he has. There's a degree of there's a kind of pervasive respect throughout this small village for him because he's a doctor professor. Right, and especially for for the young man who you know Steeny. kind of falls in his oh, snare. Oh, yes. yes. So oh, really, the dynamic is between Steeny whose mother is a widow and may or may not be in a lesbian relationship with his governess. And he periodically leaves home to go see Monsieur Ween, who, as you say, is constantly tempting Steeny with a worldview which is essentially nihilistic. And he says that the world comes to nothing, life comes to nothing, you will learn to embrace death. And Steeny, although he's fascinated by Monsieur Ween and his personality, his charm, his eloquence, and so forth, uh, he doesn't buy it, does he? Now... And, and and I guess that's the that's another one of you know this this novel is about the the, the standoff that that really takes place through the whole novel 
that 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 Steeny's soul, not not just his not just his life, as it is in the case of, of some. And, and Bernard News really makes that distinction that soul and life are are related to some degree. Um, but but here, th- this entire book is a standoff, and 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 I see Mr. Ween as this 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 spider almost in this web, and he's he's trying to pull Steeny and he's he's and he, and he has this this offer of these things that that are appealing, but he's physically repulsive. You know, he's physically repulsive, and and I think this is a great depiction of temptation and and the blindness that that we can that we can have about temptation and sin, or even even the fact that if we're not deceived by it, we see how ugly it is. But they are aspects of even its ugliness in some ways. And, and you know, when you read this book, you think, well, how can Steve, why, why is he drawn to this? But in, in some instances, he's, he's even drawn to the ugliness. He's even drawn to the, to the illness of it. And, and that's a particularly persistent question about the human condition. It's not that we don't know how bad sin is. We know how bad it is, and we pursue it anyway. Well, he's and another then, child who lacks love at home, he lacks a father. Uh, he's in that liminal. He's in that liminal space between um, childhood and adulthood. There are choices that he makes that are going to affect him for the rest of his life that you can't hide behind childhood, his age necessarily. Um, and it's it, you have these you have these child characters who have these liminal stages in their life. The um, uh, Chantal in in the Country Priest is right there. She's about that same age. Machette in the Machette novel is fourteen, and you know Steenie's right here in this age of of people who are making choices as adults that are going to affect the rest of their lives. Even though they're they're at a crossroads, so to speak, at an existential crossroads. But the, the the event that drives the plot forward is the again drowning death of a young child in the village, and the reaction of the uh, town and the priest and the local physician scientist to the death of this young child. And to me the highlight of this of this of this particular book comes when the priest observing the utter indifference of this of the town again it's a town like the diary of a country priest, Ambercore, uh, the total indifference of the town, its mayor, his wife and so forth to the death of his child, really, so how shall I put it, uh, preaches fire and brimstone at the funeral. Yes, and, and I think to understand all of Bernadette's novels, you have to, and that that particular sermon may be one of those passages that you can pull out and say, this is what... Bernanus is trying to accomplish in right. all of his novels, and and I, and I want to I want to draw a couple passages up. Uh, Please do. And he he goes to uh, Bernanus actually uh, moves to Brazil. He leaves he leaves France um, and supports uh, De Gaulle and, and Free France from from Brazil. And after World War II, he is asked to come back to France, and he does. He's asked to take some fairly high government positions, but he is still so disillusioned by the spiritual malaise in France that he um, will not be involved in the French yeah, government. He turns down the offer of the director of education. Right, right. And and this this to me this is an opening pass. This is the opening passage in Diary of a Country Priest, and I think it, it perfectly speaks to the sermon. Uh, in Mr. Wing that we find later. Here's what he says, and, and it's funny that you should use the phrase that you did uh, in comparing the two the two parishes because the very first words of Diary of the Country Priest are, mine is a parish like all the rest. They're all alike, those of today, I mean. And so, you know, he, he's saying that this is a pervasive problem. Wherever you go, you're going to come across this. And the problem is not 
that we don't see evil. The problem is we're bored to death with it. He says, my parish is bored stiff. No other word for it. Like so many others, we can see them being eaten up by boredom. We can't do anything about it. Someday, perhaps, we shall catch it ourselves, become aware of the cancerous growth within us. You can keep going a long time with the that dead. Issue. The dead parish, the priest calls it. The dead parish. But but now, watch. Look what he does here. He he says that this boredom is a spiritual cancer growing within us, and you can keep going a long time with that. And well, the the plot of Diary of a Country Priest is you've got this year a priest who has stomach cancer. And it's killing him. And he starts off this diary, which ends in his death of stomach cancer, by saying that there is this there's this uh, boredom with spiritual things that is like a cancer that is killing you know the the parishes. And you can keep going a long time with that. He says that, he says the world is eaten up by boredom. To perceive to perceive this needs a little preliminary thought. You can't see it all at once. It is like dust. You go about and never notice. You breathe it in. You eat and drink it. It is sifted so fine it doesn't even grit on your teeth. But stand still for an instant, and there it is, coating your face and hands to shake off this drizzle of ashes. You must be forever on the go. And so people are always on the go. Perhaps the answer would be that the world has long been familiar with boredom, that such is the true condition of man. But I wonder if man has ever before experienced this contagion, this leprosy of boredom, an aborted despair, a shameful form of despair in some way like the fermentation of a Christianity in decay. Man, that, well, that gets you right there. That makes a perfect uh, conclusion to our conversation about George Baranos. I think we've got to come back and look at him again down the road here, perhaps in the next few weeks. So, Stan Butt, thank you so much for being my guest today on Church and Culture. And I really, really appreciate how much you you brought to the table for us to discuss. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Bill. Thank you. And to all of you who are listening, we'll be back at this time and on this date next week. If you have any comments or questions about church and culture, you can contact Deal Hudson at dhudson at AveMariaRadio.net.